Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. Speak on uh, November the, what is today, the 12th, 14th? Can't remember what it is. But anyway, uh, I said, yeah, no, that'd be awesome. I'd love to come down there, see you and Corey, and and, uh, spend some time together. He's like, well, I won't be here. I was like, oh, that's no problem. At least I'll get to hang out with the staff. Love those guys, you know, Aaron, Garrett, and those Trevor. And he's like, well, they won't be here either. I said, well, that's all right. I mean, I get to hang out with Corey. I love to see Corey as often as I can. He said, well, she won't be here either. So it's good to see you here. Uh, you know, we're going to have a good time together. Um, but I, I am pumped that they get. We've been, Jeremy and I have been texting this morning, and they're getting a chance to, to see uh, church done at another place, and, and uh, that's always a good thing. So love, love Jeremy and Corey, love this church, and I'll probably be back in a few weeks. We always try to slot in here for the holidays and uh, whenever we're down in Atlanta with uh, Andrea's family, but, uh, but excited to be here. So uh, we're continuing a series today here at the church about legacy, and um, I love this series. I love this idea of a series because... Um, I think sometimes we get so zoomed in in life. We kind of think about what's right in front of us. We think about our schedule for today or our schedule for the week. Uh, We think about the most urgent things, and sometimes the most urgent things are not the most important things. Most of the time, the most urgent things are not the most important things, and the most important things are not the most urgent things. So I love this idea of legacy. I mean, it's the whole mission of the church, really, living like it matters and... um, I loved this morning uh, during worship looking up and seeing Tucker, one of my nephews, but one of the, the, the kids, students here. He probably didn't like being called a kid, but uh, up on the worship team. That's just something you guys do that I love just from an outside perspective, just involving the generations. And, and so I love this idea about, about legacy. And uh, last week, Pastor Jeremy opened up talking about the legacy of faith and how that our relationship with God uh, matters to the next generations. The Bible talks about that idea um, and so I'm going to continue today talking about the legacy of the church, the legacy of church, legacy of church. And when I say the word church, just that word, when I say the word church, we think of a lot of different ideas. A lot of different images may come to your mind when I say the word church. Uh, some people think of the church that they attended as a kid with their parents or their grandparents. It's crazy to me now, you know, uh, as a pastor, I talk to people or on an airplane or in a restaurant or coffee shop, and they find out I'm a pastor, and immediately, no matter how old they are, immediately they kind of go back and start talking about church as a kid, Uh, and it it impacts them in such a negative or positive way. But for a lot of us, maybe when I say church, you know, for me, I have memories of my grandfather's church. He was a pastor, and I have memories of, uh, of New Hope Church of God when I was a kid, and and breaking stuff during the week up there. That's a little what I think about a lot, but um, maybe that's your thought. Some people think about cathedrals, where I pastor in Louisville. It is a heavy Catholic area, a Catholic city. Um, so many of our church members are former Catholics, and, um, and so for a lot of them, when I say church, uh, they think cathedrals. Uh, a couple of them still call me Father Jason, which is always weird, but funny. Um, uh, communion is always exciting at our church. People are never sure what, what's going on uh, there. And uh, some people just walk up for communion and open their mouth. They think I'm going to put it in there. And I'm like, hey, I didn't grow up like that. So uh, we do it a little differently here. Um, but some people think of cathedrals. Uh, some people, even maybe now more than ever recently because of COVID and different things, some people think of, 
living rooms and home groups and watching it on, on TV or their favorite preacher online. Um, and there are more examples, I'm sure. Church can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And listen, that's not a bad thing. Um, different styles, different denominations, different looks, different dress, different, uh, um, you know, ethnicities, different uh, demographics, all of those things. That's a beautiful, a beautiful thing. But what I want to do today is I want to read kind of a lengthy passage of scripture from the book of James that gives us a picture of what the church should be. It's going to give us kind of a baseline Uh, model or description of what the church should be and why it's important and why it matters for us and the generations that come behind us. Why it matters to us and the generations that come behind us. So James chapter 5 is where I'm going to be reading today. I'm going to start at verse 7 and I'm going to go all the way down to the end of the book, which is verse 20. So uh, a little bit lengthy here, um, but just kind of bear with me because it's important. So we're going to read it together. Verse 7, James 5. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, Look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Verse 13. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then, when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. Verse 19, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. So a lengthy passage of scripture there, but the reason I wanted to read all of that is because this gives us a a beautiful, phenomenal description of what the life of people of faith should look like and what the church should look like, what the people of faith should do uh, when we come together. And it's really broken up in two parts. If you have a Bible, you were reading along with me, uh, not just on the screen. In your Bible, you probably saw some headings there, and you see kind of how it's broken up. But it's really broken up into two parts. Verses 7 through 12 are about how we should live. Those of us who are Christians, those of us who are people of faith, who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, it tells us how we should live. And then verses 13 through 20 describe how we should worship. And, and like everything else that James does, if you've ever read the book of James, I think maybe you guys have taught through it here, 
He describes the way that we should live and the way that we should worship in very practical, down-to-earth ways. And I love this because um, as you read through the book of James, there's 11 or 12 different topics. It's kind of, James is kind of the how to uh, live the Christian life book. And it's writ- it was written to uh, first, maybe second, first and second generation Christians, maybe 50, 60 AD. It was kind of one of the first letters, documents that were helping these Christians to learn how to live their life. And so James talks about how to endure trouble and how to guard your tongue and how to not be prejudiced and how to manage money and uh, all kinds of really practical ways that we should live. But I love that he ends the letter talking about the church. He describes how we should live and then he describes how we should worship together and what we should do um, when we come together. And he does it really practically. And I want to show you that this practical way that he describes it. He says, Christian brothers and sisters should live patiently. He says like farmers. Now, I don't know if anybody here is a farmer. I'm not a, I'm not a farmer at all. Never been a farmer. Maybe you are. Maybe your parents were. I don't know. I'm in Georgia, so there may be some farmers. Um, but what I know about farmers is they're just patient. <laughs> they just, they plant and, and they work and they wait and they plant and they work and they wait. And so he describes it that we should be patient. We should be content and we should be honest. That's what he's talking about when he says, let your yes be yes and don't swear. And he's just saying, don't be an exaggerating person. Just be an honest person. So be patient, content, and honest. And then when you worship, you should pray, sing, confess, and look out for each other. This is the way that one of the early church leaders talking to Christians describes what our life and our worship should look like. Our lives should look patient, content, and honest, and our worship should include praying, singing, confessing, and looking out for each other. I love this. I love this. I love it because it is so simple and so countercultural, which is what the church has always been. And at first, living in 2021, it sounds a little bit underwhelming. We live in a society that that hypes everything up to a boiling point, don't we? Uh, my wife is not into sports. She puts up with it because um, of me. And, uh, and she's not into sports, but one of her pet peeves that she can't stand is she's like, how come every sporting event has this massive epic intro with like opera singers and deep voices? And it's like, you know, it comes down to this. She's like, it doesn't come down to this. They're going to do it again next week. And then they're going to do it again next week. And they're going to do it on Thursday. And they're going to do it on Saturday. And they're going to, she's like, why? It, it, it builds up, it builds up. But that's how everything in our society is. Everything is, is built up to be epic. Every book you read, every movie you watch, every event you go to, it's going to be the best thing that's ever happened. It's going to be the most phenomenal, unbelievable, greatest experience of your life. And then here James describes the Christian life as praying, singing, and confessing together while we patiently endure and don't grumble. Right? It's like, that needs help, right? Like, James, you don't understand. Like, that needs something. That needs some some chutzpah. That needs some pizzazz. Like, come on, we got to say more than that. Like, this is going to change your life forever. It's, it's like, no, here's what I want you to do. Just pick a time, come together, pray a little bit, sing a little bit, confess to each other, look out for each other, be patient, and don't grumble. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's so understated. 
It's so countercultural. I love the way Tish Warren puts it. Tish Warren uh, wrote a book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary, which is one of the best books I've read this year in in a long time. I've read it twice this year. I would highly recommend it. Um, But she said this. She said, if I am to spend my whole life being transformed by the good news of Jesus, I must learn how grand sweeping truths, doctrine, theology, ecclesiology, Christology, rub against the texture of an average day. How I spend this ordinary day in Christ is how I will spend my Christian life. I love that. I love that. I love this idea that what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a faith person, a faith uh, believer in Jesus Christ, is that he comes and he steps into my ordinary days, not my grand, great days. He he steps into my ordinary days. That that he helps me live in the monotony of every day. When I lose my keys and when my kid messes up something in the house again and when the car breaks down and when I'm having a bad day at work, like my faith in Jesus affects those days. It doesn't just affect my mission trips to Africa. It doesn't just affect, you know, the building of new church buildings. It, it doesn't just affect elections politically or epidemics or, or pandemics across the world. It also affects the frustration I feel when I've already poured the cereal in the bowl, but there's no milk in the refrigerator. It affects that too, because it affects me. And he's, the presence of Christ is with me. The everydayness, the ordinary. This is what James is getting at here, is that, is that if, if our faith in Jesus is only always grand, it's, if it's only always big, then we're missing it. We're missing something. Be, because, be, because faith in Jesus affects the ordinary. My mom used to say it like this. She used to say that people are too heavenly minded or too too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. You ever heard anybody say that? She'd say, Yeah, they love Jesus, but they can't do the dishes. That's what she'd say. And you know, if 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 your relationship with Jesus doesn't help you do the dishes, it's not working right. Now, wives, some of y'all need to elbow right there. Right? But, but there's something to that, this everydayness, this, this ordinary. And I can't think of a more countercultural description than that, that, that there would be a people that are non-grumbling, non-restless, non-exaggerating people who pray and sing and confess together. What a beautiful description of a church family. I don't know if you noticed that I was reading it, but five times in these verses, James said, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. He's talking to the family, the family of God. But I, but I have to be honest with you and admit that as a pastor myself, uh, you know, in the context of where I'm at and I'm not speaking for Jeremy. He can speak for himself. I, I don't know this to be true, but I can speak for me that as a pastor, it breaks my heart a little bit to read passages like this as well because I worry that many of the Christians, James, it, it, the, the descriptions that James is describing here of Christians is not the descriptions that we would use to describe Christians particularly today. 
It's becoming harder and harder in the chaos and emotions of politics and social media to identify the non-grumbling, non-restless, non-exaggerating Christians from everyone else. While at the same time, again, just speaking for myself, feeling this constant pressure to have to convince people to come to church, to have to convince people to be a part of the church family. Now you're here, so I'm preaching to the choir, okay? There was nothing worse growing up than the preacher taking it out on the people who showed up about the people who didn't show up. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not just talking about a Sunday attendance here or there. I'm talking about being a part of the church family. There is this this brokenheartedness that I feel as a pastor having to work so hard to convince people you really should want to be a part of the family of God. You really should want to be a part of his church, be connected to what, what we're doing. We, we, we want you to be a part of what we're doing and we want you to participate and put forth effort and sing and pray and confess together with, with us. And James' words here are a great reminder that Christians have a way that we live and we worship. We have a way that we do this. It's not just a subjective idea of what church is or what we do when we gather. There's a real objective way that Christians, that we live and and we worship. We can't do it on our own. We need a church family to, to sing with and to pray with and to confess to. Um, I want to read two excerpts to you. I am, uh, I am a book nerd. I'm like a, I, you just got to know about me. Like I'm, uh, I'm, I got my, I got stacks of books everywhere. I love to read. And lately I have just really kind of nerded out on, um, biographies and early church history. I don't know why, but I just have. And, and, and I want to read these two excerpts to you that are to me just really beautiful descriptions of the church and the way that we worship. Now, the first was written by a man named Justin Martyr. His last name's not Martyr. It was given to him after he became a martyr. Um, but Justin Martyr was a Christian philosopher in the second century, and he wrote a defense of Christianity in 150 AD um, that was kind of the first big defense of Christianity, apologetic. And I love the simplicity in the way that he describes the way that early Christians worship. So I'm going to read this to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want to read it to you. 150 AD, this is the description of, of the church worshiping together. This is what he says. He says, And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then... When the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayer has ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president, in like manner, offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks have been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. And they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with the president who secures the orphans and widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want and those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning among us and in a word takes care of all who are in need. 
I love that. I, I have to admit that the first time I read it, I became a little emotional because it was a reminder to me that as Christians, we are part of something that involves hundreds of millions of people over thousands of years. That as great as Generations Church is, that this is, we didn't, we didn't come up with this. That as, as Christians and as a church and as people in the family of God, we are a part of something that involves hundreds of millions of people for thousands of years. That in 150 AD, people were coming together. I love they were meet, reading the memoirs of the apostles. I love that. They were praying together. They were giving They were taking care of one another. They were taking communion together. And while it may look a little different, and we got sound systems now and, you know, all this different stuff, it's really not that different. That as we gather here today, we are doing what the Christians have done for thousands of years. In every corner of the globe today, every country, demographic, gender, age, some places where it's illegal, some places where it's not illegal. People are coming together like they have since 34 AD, singing, worshiping, confessing, taking communion together. We're a part of that. We're part of that. That you got up this morning and you put your clothes on and you grabbed you some coffee and you came to church but you're not just coming to church. You're participating in the family of God. You're you're participating in what Christ established thousands of years ago, and you're doing it. I mean, time zones are a little different, but you're doing it with hundreds of millions of people together, different styles, different songs, but you're doing it. I remember as a kid, my, uh, my dad, one of my dad's goals was to take my brother and I on as many mission trips as possible. He wanted to broaden our worldview. And so from a young age, we would start traveling with my dad. And that's a tradition we've tried to carry on with our kids. We've had a chance to take them to, uh, to Russia and, and uh, South America, Guatemala, different things. And just want them to see that the world's big. God's big. The world's big. You're not that big. You know, calm down. And, um, and so... Uh, but I remember as a kid, we did a lot of stuff in Hispanic-speaking churches. We'd go to Mexico and, uh, you know, Central America, and, and uh, then we would even stay in the States, but, but go out to the West Coast, and just a lot of Hispanic-speaking churches. These were not bilingual services. They, they, they were glad we were there, but they didn't feel any pressure to, you know, figure it out in English for us, and so we would be there, and we, I, as a, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old kid, I had no idea what they were saying at all. But I'd been in enough church services, I could kind of piece it together. This is the fast song, the slow song, we're about to give, stand, sit. You know, I got it. But without fail, every time we were there, our group was there, our family was there, because the English-speaking Americans were there, they would always include in the worship service, they would throw us a little bone, and they would always in the worship set start singing, hallelujah, because that's universal. Uh, you know this song, Hallelujah. If you don't know it, the lyrics are really tough. Ready? Hallelujah. Sing it with me. Hallelujah. 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 
sing this song when we were with them. And that was the, there was like 90 seconds in the service where we would get to participate together because we all knew the word hallelujah in Spanish. I was speaking Spanish and able to worship together with them. And this has been happening. It continues to happen. This morning, as we're singing these songs together, when elders come forward to pray, we're participating in the body of Christ and the family of God together. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I want to read you this second excerpt. It's from Charles Marsh, who wrote a biography on Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And in 1931, Bonhoeffer visited America for nine months um, as he was finishing his, his uh, college degrees. And as he was here, and it was his first trip to America, and he, he says that he was captivated, in his words, by the soulful Negro churches in and around New York City, Bonhoeffer said. And, and so using some of Bonhoeffer's own words, this is how Marsh described Bonhoeffer's experience, 1931, in and around New York City. It says, with an enormous intensity of feeling, the gospel is preached with conviction and power and interrupted by cries of joy. It was proof that one really could still hear someone talk about sin and grace and the love of God and ultimate hope. And beyond the preaching, Bonhoeffer felt churched deep in his bones, in the spirituals, in the strange mixture of reserved melancholy and the ecstatic joy in the soul of the Negro. It was as if these rural folk, by some synthetic power and spiritual genius, had earthed emotion, intensity, and feeling in the sorrowful joy of Jesus. I love that. It was that phrase, reserved melancholy and ecstatic joy, that resonated with me. It's a great description of what we experience as Christians in worship, that as we come in here today, we are this contradiction. We are these two things at the same time. We live in a broken, fallen world. We are not citizens of this world. We are, this is not our home. And so there is a natural reserved melancholy in us, while at the same time having the spirit of Christ in us that brings an ecstatic joy And so we come together anxious, hurting, impatient, discontent, doubting. Maybe this is your first time here. Come back when Jeremy's here, please. But maybe this is your first time here and you look around and you say, man, it feels like everybody's got it together. It feels like everybody's doing good. Listen, they don't. They don't. We all have this hurting side to us this impatient, discontent, doubting side. And we don't really come in here in a frame of mind to worship or to pray, but we come anyway. We come because we need each other. And listen, more than we need a sermon or to enjoy the music, we need each other. We need to pray together and worship together and be honest with one another, confessing and forgiving we, we experience this, the, the pain and the sadness of our humanity, but the joy and the mercy and the life filled with the Spirit of God. This is what we do when we gather. We bring our brokenness and our joy. We bring our hurt and our hope because we have Christ in this fallen world. But it's not a natural thing. It's not a natural thing to want to show up and to bring that to the table because everything in your life is designed to make you speed up and isolate yourself. 
Where else in this world is anybody trying to help you shape and form your soul into a kind of person? Well, your kid's ball coach? Come on. The, the PTA president? I don't know if they still call it the PTA, but you know what I mean. Local politicians? Your neighbor? Where, where else are you going to go where somebody says, you know what? The most important thing is how, how your soul is being shaped and formed. How are you becoming more like Christ? No. No, everything in your life is designed to isolate you and to speed you up. And to live the Christian life requires grace and intentionality. You don't accidentally end up more patient, more content, more honest, more prayerful, more worshipful, or more connected to a church family. You don't wake up in six months and say, you know what? I'm more happy, more content, more connected. It takes intentionality. And that's actually the brilliance of these words from James. In a way, you could say that the reason we need the church so badly is because every second that we are living in this world, we are breathing in and breathing out and breathing in and breathing out. And we're breathing the air of this world that's making us more impatient, less content, less honest. It's in coming together coming together with our brothers and sisters and praying and singing and caring for one another, that we are able to detox and to repent and to begin again. We need each other because this is the place where we breathe in the Spirit of God and and we start again. And so, uh, we could take a lot of time to talk about all of these practices he, he, he describes here, but we don't have time to do that. Uh, what I want to do for just the few moments we have left is I just want to highlight one of them, just one of them. And we could do this about all of them. And I want to encourage you to really think through each of these, the praying together and singing together and communion and all those things. But I just want to highlight one, and that's in verse 16. In verse 16, James says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, again, I, I grew up in, or not grew up, but I, I pastor in a very strongly Catholic area. And so for a lot of my church people, the idea of coming to church and confessing is not necessarily a foreign idea. But I did not grow up like that. Uh, you didn't come to church and confess the way I grew up. You came to church and lied. That's what you did. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like you don't come and talk about what's wrong. You come and promote this idea that you are doing unbelievable Blessed and highly favored, praise the Lord. There was no confession. There was just lying about how good that you were doing. You had just, you know, fought to the death in the car as a family. But man, you are, come on, blessed and highly favored by the Lord. And so this idea of coming to church and confessing, and I got to be honest, I've always kind of wanted to do, like, go get in one of those confession booths, you know, but then all my Catholic friends told me it ain't that cool, so I kind of let that go, but um, what does James mean here? What does he mean by confessing? What does he mean, come to church and confess? Should we, should we, should we set up a confession booth here in the foyer uh, and, and put Jeremy in there, and, uh, and that's just a part of your worship? As you leave today, you know, make sure you slide by the confession booth and unload. Um, is that what he means? I hope not right? What, what does he mean by confess, and why is it important how we, why is it important to the way that we live our Christian life? 
When we come together to pray, to worship and confess, we are, we are practicing the posture we want to live every single day. That in a way that, that this, is the, this is the rehearsal, this is the practice. We're coming together, we're learning the plays. We're a team and we're learning the playbook so that we can go out into our life Monday through Saturday and we can run the plays. We can live the Christian life. We can, we can have the posture of the Christian life that we want to have. We don't want Sunday to be the only place where we're praying, singing, worshiping, confessing. Uh, taking communion. We don't want that to be the only time. It's, 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 it's in coming here that we learn how to do those things and, and we, we get the Christian posture. This is why we should just never come to church and watch. You should come to church and participate because it's the place that you, where you learn how to live out your faith every other day of the week. That praying and worshiping and confessing should be a regular part of the rhythm of our life. But it's with our brothers and sisters at church where we learn how to do them. So as a guest who is coming in today, let me just encourage you. Some of you, and I don't know you, Jeremy didn't leave me names to call out, all right? So uh, this is very general. But some of you need to take a step and start worshiping with your church family. Do you have something to be glad about? James said, you got anything to be glad about? Man, if you've got something to be glad about, worship. And it doesn't mean that the lyrics of the song have to directly apply to the thing that you're glad about. But man, you're just worshiping God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's love. Maybe you say, I don't have anything to be glad about. Do you know anybody who has anything to be glad about? Well, be glad with them and worship. Worship together with your brothers and sisters. And so some of you, been, you've been coming for a while, I'm sure. And, you know, you're still kind of here during the worship time, you know. And listen, you can do it a lot of different ways. I'm not the most demonstrative person in the world, uh, you know. But, but, but don't you know whether or not you're participating in the worship. And James says this is a part of the Christian way. It's a part of the Christian faith. Like, go ahead and take a step. I know it's nerve-wracking. I get it. But I just want to encourage you, like, let's, you know, Let's go ahead and let's get them out. You know, let's get them, let's get them four and six, four, four and seven right here. You know, five and seven on the clock, you know, or, you know, maybe a couple more weeks we're here. Come on, a couple more weeks we may be here, you know, and, and that's okay. Or maybe, maybe your hands stay in your pockets. That's all right too. But you're singing or you're, or you're meditating or you're, or you're allowing what's, because you have a reason to worship with your brothers and sisters. Don't, don't just watch, participate. Do, do, do you have anything that, that you need to pray about? Man, I want to encourage some of you, instead of just staying in your seat, when there's an opportunity and the leaders of the church come forward for prayer, I want you to step forward and to pray. Do you need something that you should pray about or that's troubling you? Do you know somebody who's troubled? This is the place where we come together and we pray. This is the place where we bring our troubles and we talk about them out in the open and we pray together. 
Maybe, maybe it's not coming forward and praying with the leaders of the church. Maybe it's going, uh, you know, to someone, I'm getting crazy here, but maybe you go find somebody in a really not weird way and you just say, hey, I know what's going on. I know you're taking care of a parent right now who's sick, or I know you're having marriage trouble, or I know you're struggling with your kids right now, or I know there's medical problems, or, or I know you're really stressed or anxious about what's going on. And, and, and would it be okay? Could I just pray with you? Can I be honest with you? Sometimes the best prayers come from the non-professional pastors because you don't know what to say and you don't have that prayer voice. You know that prayer voice? Heavenly Father. Like you don't, like you just, you're just honestly, innocently doing the best you know how to do. And man, it's such a prayer of faith. And so maybe, and I know I'm getting crazy here, but maybe we just kind of take a step out of our seat and we go and we find somebody and we pray with them because we know they're troubled. Or we ask somebody to pray for us because we're troubled. But I don't think anybody is that nervous about the singing and the praying. (laughs) Okay, I'll do that. But the confessing, how much are we confessing? Like, what's the statute of limitations? How how far am I going back here? Are we talking high school? Are we talking spring break 99? I'm not sure exactly what all is on the table here about what I'm supposed to be talking about. Do we just tell God? Do we tell our neighbor? Do we tell the church? Do we stand up and say, I have some things I need to confess? Do we tell our growth group? What do we do? Well, When a church is a family, there should be relationships where you feel comfortable being honest about who you are. And this is what James is talking about here. He's not talking about revealing everything you've ever done wrong in your life. So take a deep breath. He's talking about having open conversations about where you need healing. You notice what he said. He said, confess and you will be healed. Confess and you will be healed. There's something troubling you. There's something weighing you down. There's something. He says, confess and you'll be healed. And so if there's an area in your life where you need healing, you need to tell someone. Do you need to forgive someone, but you can't let it go? You need to tell someone that. Is there there a pet sin that seems to have too much control of your life? You need to tell someone. Are you feeling guilty or ashamed or anxious or afraid? You need to tell someone. This is what it means to be a part of, of a family, that you know that you can actually be honest about who you are. When my mom passed away, uh, a little bit later, my dad started dating again, ended up marrying this wonderful lady named Shelly, who may be watching or listening to the podcast, I don't know, but um, uh, when, when dad and Shelly started dating, uh, we went on vacation together as a family to the beach, and I was so uncomfortable, because she's not family yet, so am I allowed to have my shirt off? I was very torn. I didn't know, like, we're at the beach, but you're not family Am I allowed? We grew up conservative, okay? So, like, can I have my shirt off? So I'm swimming in, like, a long sleeve turtleneck. I didn't know if I was allowed to do this, right? Because it's not family. But there's something about when you know it's family now, you know, I mean, shirt's off now, you know, it's, it's no big deal, but, which I'm not saying that's what we do here, but I, but I am, am saying that part of being a family is being comfortable being who you are. That's how you know your family. There are friends that you have in your life. When you go over, you know there's no pretense. Like, it's, they're friends, but they're family. Well, we are the family of God. And so what is that pretense? What is that facade? What is that thing that you've been carrying around? You need to tell someone. 
I think our biggest hurdle to confession is that we think it's reserved for big things, big mistakes, you know, but it's not. Confession should be a regular or daily, sometimes even hourly practice in the life of a Christian because it's admitting that we need grace. That's what confession is. Uh, Rich Mullins, uh, he's deceased now for a while, but he was a famous Christian singer back in the 80s and 90s. And he used to say that when he was a kid, uh, he, he would walk down the aisle of the church and be born again again. I could so relate to that. I think I got saved about 200 times as a kid. And he would rededicate his life to Christ every year at camp. And then he said in college, he would do it about every six months and then quarterly. And by the time he was in his 40s, it was about four times a day. I love that. That's it right there. I love that. That rededication, repentance, Committing again to God is not something we do biannually. It's not something we do just when the preacher shows up for the service and makes us feel convicted. That rededication and repentance should be a hourly, uh, a minute-by-minute part and practice of our life. Because if I can be comfortable being a confessing Christian, then, 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 then it's going to make its way into the small moments of my day. Confession's going to make its way into the small moments of our day. And when it does, then grace will find its way into the small parts of my day. Confession is an opportunity to be reminded of my sin, but more importantly, it's an opportunity to be reminded of God's grace and God's love for me. Confession reminds us that none of us gather for worship because we're pretty good people. We're not. But we are new people, made new in Christ. People marked by grace in spite of ourselves because of the work of Christ. And so after the legacy of faith, that's most important. After the legacy of faith, I can't think of a more important legacy to pass on to the generations that come after us than being a part of the family of God. We don't go to church so God's not mad at us. We don't go to church so we can check it off our list. We don't go to church so that our kids, now that we're parents, are moral people. We go to church because we wanna be a part of the family of God. We want a place where we can practice the Christian life, learn the posture of the Christian life, and be a part of the hundreds of millions of believers around the world throughout history who pray, confess, sing together, come to the Lord's table so that we can live a non-grumbling, patient, honest life as we wait for his return. And so, man, I want to encourage you, don't just watch. Don't just watch. Participate. Join the family. Pull up a chair at the table. Let's be the family of God together. Will you bow your heads? I want to pray for us. God, we are constantly surrounded by people, but feel alone. We feel insecure and impatient. God, in a world of convenience, we have lost the ability to patiently endure without complaining. 
We, we long for something deeper than this world can offer us, something more than escape or technique, God. We long to be known, to be loved and accepted, challenged and led. And God, you created a place for us, a place for us to make sense of our life, a place to distill the lies from the truth, a place to make sense of our dreams, of our faith, of, of who we are, of who you are, God. You create a place where we can come and breathe, a place where we can find rest from the pace of our life, a place where we can find joy from the wounds of this world. So God, give us a greater passion for your church, a greater love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and let our soul find joy in the family of God. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.